What does a cow, a firstborn son, oil, and inheritance, and five shekels of silver all have in common? They're all found in Numbers chapters 18 and 19, the passage that we are studying together this morning. Uh, and I have to admit, on first glance, on a superficial read, these chapters are uh, somewhat strange. But on deeper reflection, these chapters are also surprising. They're strange because if you, if you just step back and kind of took an inventory or, or, or made a list of things that we, we read about in these two chapters, kind of like a grocery list, uh, you, you would scratch your head and think, now what kind of strange grocery store does this person shop at? Um, th these chapters make you think, say things like, wait, I'm sorry, D did you just say that they mixed the ashes of a cow with water and then threw it on people? Yes, in fact, they did. Strange indeed. But these chapters are also wonderfully surprising. When we place that long grocery list in its context, I think that we begin to see its importance and God's generosity. What is more, when we consider the Bible's wider teaching on that water-throwing ritual, we see God's practical care for His people. God's concern to actually relate to them, express His love for them. And ultimately, how Jesus Christ has brought sinners like you and me near to God. It's my hope this morning that as we study Numbers chapters 18 and 19, we will be able to make sense of the strange things that we find here and that we will be surprised by how God's grace is revealed in them. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and open your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapters 18 and 19. If you're following along in one of the Bibles provided, then you can find the passage beginning on page 126. 126. And while you're turning there, allow me to remind us of what we've studied so far in the book of Numbers. We're content, continuing our study in the book of Numbers. Uh, we just finished up Numbers chapters 16 and 17 a couple of weeks ago, and now we're looking at Numbers chapters 18 and 19. Now Moses, he's the, he's the author of the book of Numbers. He probably wrote it near the end of his life. And the events of this book pick up nearly two years after God has brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery. And it follows the people of Israel, especially through a period of about 40 years, wandering through the wilderness. Why are they wandering? Well, they were hoping to enter the promised land, the, the land that God had promised to give Abraham and his offspring. But once they got to their, their destination, to the edge of the promised land, ready to enter in, they saw the strength of the inhabitants of the land and they feared and they decided not to go in. They disobeyed God's command to enter into the land. And so in judgment, God told the people of Israel that the generation who refused to enter the promised land, who refused to obey His word, would die in the wilderness. In mercy, God also told the people of Israel that their children would, after a period of 40 years, enter into the promised land. In Numbers chapters 18 and 19, we're in the midst of that period of wandering. Some significant events have just transpired in Numbers chapter 16 and 17. The people of Israel, uh, they once again complained and grumbled against God. They complained and grumbled against His chosen leaders, Moses and Aaron. And because of their rejection and rebellion against God, they faced His rightful judgment and wrath. 
Moses and Aaron, even though they've been sinned against, they have interceded for the people of Israel by praying to God. Aaron, in particular, has made atonement for the sin of Israel. And God's wrath against Israel has been satisfied. But not before more than 14,000 people died because of God's wrath. In Numbers 17, God confirmed Aaron's priestly ministry. And the people of Israel feared approaching the tent, the tabernacle, the place where God resided. They feared approaching God's tent unless they would die. Now here's how Numbers 18 and 19 connect to those two significant chapters. As you might have noticed from the headings in your Bible, the heading for Numbers 18 mentions the duties of priests and Levites. These headings are not inspired, but they're very often helpful summaries of what follows. In Numbers 18, God affirms the importance of the ministry of Aaron and the priests and the Levites. The key, given this is key given that the people of Israel have just challenged Aaron's priesthood. The people of Israel need to know that God supports Aaron and his ministry, and frankly, that they need Aaron and his ministry, and that they were to submit to Aaron and his ministry. The heading then for Numbers 19, you might notice, indicates that the verses in that chapter are about laws for purification. In particular, they are laws about how to be made clean when you come into contact with the dead. How does this connect? Well, in two ways. First, more than 14,000 people have just died in a plague of God's wrath against Israel's sin in number 16. And so all of those dead bodies, their friends and family, those dead bodies sadly need to be dealt with in a manner in which God authorizes. Second, the people of Israel are wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And during that time, an entire generation will die off. And their dead bodies will need to be dealt with too. When we come to these chapters and study them as people living thousands of years after they were written, we instinctively feel their strangeness. And we might think to ourselves, what does any of this have to do with me and my life today? Well, friends, brothers and sisters, I assure you that these chapters address issues that we deal with every day. Just just think about it like this. There is not a day that goes by that we do not need someone to plead with God to forgive us of our sins. That was the work of Aaron and the Old Testament priests. And their work pointed forward to Jesus and His work. Further, there is not a day that goes by in our world that we do not hear about the horrors of death and need to be reminded of the hope that we have in Christ. That in Christ, death has lost it's sting. Just in these last two days, I received an email about somebody concerned about their parents are going to die. And another one about somebody's grandfather this morning. Death is all around us and it is a sorrowful subject. These two chapters in God's Word, as strange as they might first seem, have much to say to us about our lives today. And we're going to study these two chapters in much the same way that we studied in Numbers 16 and 17. First, we're going to walk through them. We're going to try and get a hold, get a grasp of these, the contents of these chapters, and what they contain. And then we're going to walk through them again in order to think through how they point to Jesus and apply to us. And if you're taking notes this morning, these are the three points that are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. 
First, the service of the priests and Levites. The service of the priests and Levites. Second, the service of Jesus Christ. And third, the service of Christ followers. Let's begin with our first point, the service of priests and Levites. And as we do, read Numbers chapter 18, verses 1 to 7. Numbers chapter 18, verses 1 to 7. So the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear iniquity connected with the sanctuary. And you and your sons with you shall bear iniquity connected with your priesthood. And with you, bring your brothers also, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that they may join you and minister to you while you and your sons with you are before the tent of the testimony. They shall keep guard over you and over the whole tent but shall not come near to the vessels of the sanctuary or to the altar, lest they and you die. They shall join you and keep guard over the tent of meeting for all the service of the tent. And no outsider shall come near you. And they shall keep guard over the sanctuary and over the altar, that there may never again be wrath on the people of Israel. And behold, I have taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel, they are a gift to you, given to the Lord, to do the service of the tent of meeting. And you and your sons with you shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar, and that is within the veil, and you shall serve. I give your priesthood as a gift, and any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Now it's easy to miss, but three groups of people are, are mentioned in these verses. The priests the Levites, and the people of Israel. You can think of these three groups as uh, three concentric circles. The, the people of Israel are, are obviously the, the largest group of people, but inside the people of Israel were the, the special tribe of the Levites. And yet even inside that special tribe of Levites were those who were part of Aaron's household. They were the ones who served as the priests. Both the Levites and priests were called to work at the tabernacle. But only the priests, those of, of Aaron's house, that smaller group, were called to work inside the tabernacle. The Levites were to, to guard the priests and protect them while they ministered before the Lord. The priests were to guard the sanctuary and the altar, that there may never again be wrath on the people of Israel. So with, with this in view, we can see not only why the Lord is reaffirming the ministry of Aaron and the priests, but also why the Levites and the people of Israel should view the priests themselves as a gift from God. Here is a comforting reassurance to the concern that the people of Israel raised at the end of chapter 17, that they could not approach the tents or they would die. The priests and the Levites were men who would offer sacrifices on their behalf and so satisfy the wrath of God against their sin. And God was generous to the people of Israel in giving them the priests and the Levites. But He was also generous to the Levites and to the priests. God's generosity to the Levites and the priests is really what verses 8 to 24 communicate. Unlike the other tribes and families in Israel, the, the priests and the Levites couldn't go out and work the land or, or labor in other ways. All of their labor was committed to serving the Lord in and around the tabernacle. Whether that was through guarding the tabernacle or moving it or offering sacrifices within it. This meant that the priests and the Levites would need to be supplied with a living. And God generously supplied the priests and Levites with a living through 
the other tribes. Read Numbers chapter 18, verse 8. Look at verse 8. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, Behold, I have given you charge of the contributions made to me, all the consecrated things of the people of Israel. I have given them to you as a portion and to your sons as a perpetual due. Now, in the verses that follow, particularly in verses 9 to 23, we're told about God's generosity toward the priests. They receive a portion of the offerings and the sacrifice that the people of Israel brought to the tabernacle. This is how they would be supplied with food. And it was good food, too. You might notice there in verse 12 that they received the, the best of the best oil, wine, grain, and first fruits. Notice, too, at the end of verse 12, who they ultimately come from. They come from the Lord. Sure, they, 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 are, they are brought by the hands of the people of Israel, but in reality, they were gifts from God. God is so generous. Look at verse 15. 14. Every devoted thing in Israel shall be yours. With this kind of generosity from God, the priests should not have been in want. The priests were to receive the first fruits of the harvest. When God blessed the people of Israel with offspring and their flocks, those animals were to be offered in thanks to God. The priests would receive a portion of those gifts. When a family received a firstborn son in thanks, they were to redeem their son by giving five shekels in silver to the priests in the tabernacle. The firstborn of the unclean animals were to be redeemed too with silver. The Lord was generous to the priests, both physically and physically. And financially, and the covenant of salt that's mentioned there made it clear that the Lord was committed to their provision. As the Levites continually served the Lord, the Lord would continually provide for them through Israel's offerings. Even so, they, the priests and Levites, they weren't called to be stingy or allowed to be stingy with those gifts that they received from the Lord. They were called to be generous. Just like all the other tribes, they had to give one-tenth of what they received from the Lord. So did they. They were to tithe to the Lord as well. You see that in verse 26. In this, they were called to give back to the one who had given to them. And in doing so, they were a model and reminder for the people of Israel. As they gave away one-tenth of what they received, they were showing the people of Israel that they trusted that God would provide for them and the people of Israel as a whole. Still, with all this generosity, something ominous appears at least three times in Numbers chapter 18. In verses 1 and 2 and 23 of chapter 18, we're told that the priests will serve at the tent and bear the iniquity of the people of Israel. And what does that mean? Well, it means that if the people of Israel intentionally or unintentionally approach the tent of God or the sanctuary in an unauthorized manner, the Levites and the priests, not the offenders, the Levites and the priests would bear the guilt and the punishment due to the offense. In other words, they would stand in the place of the guilty as substitutes and bear the punishment due to their sin. And what was that punishment? It was death. The priests and the Levites were responsible for maintaining the sanctity of the sanctuary. If their guarding of the sanctuary and the altar failed, they would be called to give themselves up and bear the consequences of others' sin. The priests and the Levites truly were a gift, as verses 6 and 7 make clear. But how would the priests and Levites bear up under this burden of service? Well, God's provision to them through the offerings of the people of Israel would, would no doubt encourage them in their work. But the Lord gave them something much better. 
verse 20, raises an interesting quandary, and at the same time, it reveals to the priests and the Levites their true reward in this dangerous and burdensome work. In verse 20, you'll notice that the priests and Levites weren't given an ordinary inheritance. They weren't given land like the rest of the tribes. A single tract of, of land where the whole tribe could gather and live throughout a particular territory. They weren't given that. If the priests and the Levites aren't given an inheritance like that, a place to live in the land, when, where would they live? Well, Joshua chapters 13 and 21 actually promises and recounts what takes place with the Levites when the people of Israel enter into and conquer and settle the promised land. Instead of being given a single tract of land, a large portion of territory where their tribe could live together, the Levites were actually to be scattered throughout the land in various cities. The purpose of this was in part so that all of Israel could have contact with the Levites wherever they lived. And why would that be important for Israel? Well, this is important because the Levites were to be the religious leaders and teachers in Israel. They were charged with helping Israel know the Lord and love the Lord. Now, let's be honest about how the Levites might be feeling about the first half of verse 20. You shall have no inheritance in the land. Don't you think that the Levites would have wanted some lands to call their own? I, I think they would have. But notice the peculiar kindness of God to the Levites. He gives them something better than land. He gives them himself. God says to Aaron and the priests and the Levites, I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. And could God be more generous? Is there a gift on this earth worth more than God himself? And could there be any greater motivation for bearing up under these dangerous duties? When God has given so much to them, how could they not give him their service? God was the ultimate gift and treasure that the Levites received. In many ways, this was to be the perspective of every Israelite. They weren't called to love the Lord's gifts. They weren't called to love the land they were given or the tithes and offerings they were promised. Every priest, every Israelite, every Levite was called to love the giver of the gifts. They were called to love the Lord and the Lord's love for them. That He would so generously give Himself to them as their inheritance should have encouraged them as they bore the burden of serving the people of Israel. But the burdens of chapter 18 give way to the sorrowful subject of death in chapter 19. Read Numbers chapter 19 verses 1 to 23. Numbers chapter 19. Uh, sorry, verses 1 to 13. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, This is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer with a defect, without defect, in which there was no blemish, and on which a yoke has never come. And you shall give it to Eleazar the priest, and it shall be taken outside the camp and slaughtered before him. And Eleazar the priest shall come, shall take some blood, shum some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. And the heifer shall be burned in his sight, its skin, its flesh, and its blood with its dung shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet yarn and throw them into the fire of the burning heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he 
may come into the camp, but the priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns the heifer shall wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water and shall be unclean until evening. A man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. And they shall be kept for the water for the impurity for the congregation of the people of Israel. It is a sin offering. And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And this shall be a perpetual statute for the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. Whoever touches the, bo- the, the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. He shall cleanse himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day and so be clean. But if he does not cleanse himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not become clean. Whoever touches a dead body, whoever touches a, a dead person, the body of anyone who has died and does not cleanse himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from Israel because the water for impurity was not thrown on him. He shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. Now these verses describe a ritual through which the people of Israel may be cleansed after they come into contact with a dead body. A a spotless red heifer without blemish must be sacrificed outside the camp and it was also to be burned. The priests who offered the sacrifice and started the fire were then declared ceremonially unclean. Yet another priest would come along to collect the ashes of the heifer and deposit them in a clean place. And by the way, he too would be declared unclean. The ashes were to be kept and combined with water in order to ritually wash those who had become unclean through contact with the dead. Notice that all of the priests involved in this ceremony could not help but become unclean through this process. Here they were trying to aid the people of Israel in becoming ceremonially clean, but they themselves were still made unclean in the process. Death in ancient Israel not only brought grief, but it also brought ceremonial uncleanness. A person would be cleansed by having this water and the the heifer's ashes thrown on them. If you were to be cleansed, you had to be washed. And you had to be washed. The verses that follow, verses 14 to 22, describe the people of Israel, describe the people and things that were made unclean through contact with the dead. Uh, There are even detailed descriptions of, of things like open vessels being made unclean if they were merely in the same tent with a dead person. In other words, the open vessel and its contents, even if they didn't come into contact with the dead, they were declared unclean. It simply had to be under the same roof. And the point is clearly that death contaminates and uncleanness spreads. It makes other people and other things unclean. And in ancient Israel, this was a bigger deal than we might initially think. Being declared ceremonially unclean had a huge effect on your life. For one, it meant that if you were in a state of uncleanness, you you had to keep your distance from others, for you could make them unclean. You see that in verse 22. For another, it meant that you couldn't gather with God's people and worship, which should be the heaviest sorrow of all. Being unclean put distance between you and others. It put distance between you and God. Everyone in Israel should have desired to be clean before God. So serious 
was being unclean, that if you refused to be cleansed, you were to be considered as defiling the tabernacle of the Lord. Verse 13. That's why I said you, you had to be washed. Your distance from the Lord and unwillingness to be reconciled to Him by being ceremonially cleansed would result as, as you being cut off from the people of Israel. As we've already seen in the book of Numbers, being cut off from the people of Israel didn't merely mean being cast out of the camp. It meant being put to death. If you refused to obey the command of the Lord in this regard, then the wages of your sin, what was due to your sin and rebellion, was death. Which, of course, would result in more people being made unclean. For they would have to deal with your dead body. Numbers 18 and 19 clarify for us the burdens of the priests and Levites. The reward that they would receive for their heavy work and the serious situation and sorrow that death brings. In the book of Numbers, we can see how these chapters appropriately follow chapters 16 and 17, where thousands of people died in their rebellion against God. And we can also see how these chapters appropriately follow 17, chapter 17 as well, where the people of Israel are drawing, fearful of drawing near to the tabernacle, thus being put to death. How can the people of Israel live with God? How can He be their God and they be His people with the rebellion that's resident in their hearts? God intended for them to live together. How can He be their God and they be His people when they are so unclean before Him? Do you see how these chapters not only fit into the narrative of numbers, but also how these chapters put their finger and pulse on the very pulse and storyline of the whole Bible? Do you see how they relate to Jesus and what He has done? And that is what I want us to turn and consider now as we consider our second point, the service of Christ, the service of Jesus Christ. Yes, at a practical level, these two chapters explain to us how in the book of Numbers, God is able to continue to dwell with His people and be their God. They, they provide the practical means through which God may continue to make His home among them. The priests and the Levites protect God's presence as is seen in the tabernacle. They also protect God's people from God's holy presence. And the laws for purification with regard to the red heifer show us how a perfectly pure God can continue to dwell with a people who've been made unclean by the stain of sin and death. But these practical realities point to deeper truths. And I think we all feel them in our hearts and, and consciences. What is more, the, the Bible speaks to these deeper truths too. In the beginning of the Bible, we see the very first glimpse of what God wanted His relationship with His people to look like. He wanted to dwell with His people, to be with them, and to walk among them in a garden of delight. It was a, a perfect and pure place where God freely related to His people without care or concern. God expressed His generosity to them in giving them everything they could possibly need. But that's not the sense that we get in Numbers 18 and 19, is it? No, we are a, a long way from that serene scene of the garden where Adam and Eve dwelt with God without worry or care. In Numbers 18 and 19, there is the threat of death if you draw near. Chapter 18, verse 7. There is the need for someone to bear your iniquities before the Lord. Chapter 18, verse 23. There is the possibility of being made unclean and separated from God and His people. 
chapter 19, verse 11. In Numbers 18 and 19, it's clear that we're not in the garden anymore. And we also know by our own experience that we're not in the garden anymore. These chapters tell us that we are sinners who need a mediator. And a mediator who will not simply protect us from God, but a mediator who will bear our iniquities, our sins, and so reconcile us to God and bring us into a right relationship with God. These chapters tell us that we are unclean in God's sight, not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. And we know that our own hearts and our minds are dirty and need to be cleansed. These chapters tell us that we need a mediator who can wash us clean, not by the blood of a cow, but by his own blood. In short, these chapters tell us about the work of Jesus Christ. Do you see how the priest's work points forward to Jesus' work and our need for it? And let's be honest, apart from Jesus, we're sinners and we're unclean in God's sight. Apart from Jesus, we deserve to face the wrath of God that's mentioned in chapter 18, verse 5. Apart from Jesus, we deserve to be cut off from God's presence, as is mentioned in Numbers chapter 19, verse 13. Just like Adam and Eve did in that beautiful garden, we have decided to live our own way rather than God's way. And that's what the Bible calls sin. It is rejecting God's rule and living under our own. Have you been living a life without regard for God? God, He is the author of our lives. And therefore, He has the right to exercise His authority over them. His authorship implies and establishes His authority. God's authority is always and only good. Because He is always and only good. Because we have all sinned and rebelled against the good and holy God, we deserve to face His just and eternal wrath. The good news of the Bible is that God has provided His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is our great high priest who has borne the iniquities of God's people. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, we read, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. In other words, Jesus bore the iniquity and the punishment for our sin on the cross. Jesus is our great high priest who can and has washed His people clean by His own blood. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we're told that like a priest of old, He made purification for our sins. And... Referring directly to what we learn here in Numbers 19, the author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. He says this about that red heifer. For if the sprinkling of a defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience, from dead works to serve the living God. Unlike us, Jesus lived the perfectly holy life. As the, as the author of Hebrews said, He was without blemish before God. He always obeyed and honored God the Father. He never sinned. He was never made unclean by death. In fact, every dead person that He ever touched came back to life. That is why Jesus could go to the cross as our great high priest, bear our iniquities, and shed His blood to make us clean. God the Father proved 
that his son was able to do this work and that his sacrifice on behalf of his people was received with joy when he raised Jesus from the dead three days later. Jesus' resurrection from the dead proves to us that all who turn from their sin and place their faith in him have been washed clean in God's sight. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, then I want to urge you to come to Jesus Christ in faith this morning and be cleansed. Come to Jesus in faith this morning and believe that He bore your iniquities, that He bore the punishment that your sins deserve in His death on the cross. Believe that He has not only washed you clean, but that He has given you His righteousness so that you might be received as righteous in God's sight. You see, the, the amazing thing about Jesus' work is that it enables us to draw near to God. Remember that the priests and the Levites, they were to keep people from coming to the tabernacle and coming to the sanctuary, coming to the altar, but not Jesus. His work was to bring us to God. That was one of the aims of the service of Jesus Christ. This is what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Jesus Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, and being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Part of the, the Levites and the priest's service was to keep the people of Israel at a distance. But Jesus' work and service was better. And so we can draw near to God. Listen to these words from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. You see the writer of the Hebrews, you see what he's saying? He's saying that Jesus' service enables us to draw near to God. And he says, it doesn't just enable us to draw near to God, he calls us to draw near to God. He says, let us then draw near because of what Jesus has done. Those who trust in Him have been washed clean. So friend, draw near to God today through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you want to know more about what it means to be a Christian, to, to be one who, who draws near to God through faith in Jesus Christ, to be one who has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, then please come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with your friend, your family member about what Jesus has done and why we can draw near to Him. We'd love to talk to you about this wonderful good news. Now before we go on to consider how these two chapters apply to us in other ways, particularly in our service, I want us to remember that the priests were rewarded for their work. Or to put it differently, God generously gave gifts to the, to the priests and Levites. He, God, was their inheritance. How was the Lord Jesus rewarded for His service and work? What was the promise made to Christ the Son in relation to His messianic work, His saving work? Listen to what Psalm chapter 2, verse 8 says. And this is the Lord speaking to His Son. The Lord says to His Son, Ask of me, 
and I will make the nations your heritage, your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. The Apostle Paul puts it this, this way in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. He, speaking of Jesus, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus won and secured us. Brothers and sisters, he secured us as his inheritance by his life and death and resurrection. And what did he do after his resurrection? He sent his disciples out to go and claim his inheritance, what was rightfully his, to make disciples of, of all nations, as Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19. Jesus asked the Father for the nations to be his inheritance, and the Father gave Jesus all authority in heaven and on earth to send his disciples out and go and claim his inheritance. The Father has granted and is granting this request, his son's request to give him the nations. Christian, you, you are Jesus' inheritance. You, you are Jesus' treasured possession. And this is what I want us to keep in mind as, as we think about, as we turn to consider our final point the service of Christ followers. You see, when God calls us to faith in Jesus Christ, something remarkable happens. We become priests in the service of our great high priest. In the New Testament, the apostle Peter says that Christians are priests. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, he says this of Christians, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, to be sure, our, our priesthood as Christians no longer revolves around a tabernacle or temple like Aaron's, son, Aaron's sons and the Levites. We don't make offerings of bulls and goats and sheep. Instead, our service offers around the one who tabernacled among us, who was the fulfillment of the temple, who fulfilled all of those offerings. Christian, Jesus calls you to himself, and he claims you as his treasured possession. Just listen to those wonderful words, those wonderful words, precious, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Again, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You know, the world thinks of Christians as trash. But we are Jesus' treasure. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. That's what 1 Peter 2.9 says. And that is the nature of our service to Him. We are to proclaim His excellencies. 
Unlike the priests, we, we don't keep people from coming to Him. We bring people to Him. We don't keep people from the tabernacle. We bring people to Jesus, the one who tabernacled among us. Go and tell someone about Jesus this week. Tell them how wonderful He is. What He's done for you. How He has cleansed you and poured out His blood for you. Tell them about His service. Through Him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. That's what Hebrews 13, 15 says. Brothers and sisters, too often in our service of Christ, we are silent when we need to speak and acknowledge His name. Aren't you glad that another priest in the kingdom of God, another brother or sister in Christ, offered up a sacrifice of praise to God and acknowledged the name of Jesus before you. That is how you became a Christ follower. Someone acknowledged the name of Jesus Christ in your hearing and God worked in your heart by the power of the Spirit and you believed. Here's another amazing thing. God scattered His people all over the globe. All, all across Northern Virginia, all across Arlington, to be those who speak His name. You know, the Levites had a place to live among every tribe in Israel. And we have a place to live here in our communities too. And we should be those people who our neighbors and friends and co-workers come to in order to learn about Jesus. Do people know that they can talk to you about Jesus? Make sure they know be the local Levite for your friends and neighbors and family members, your co-workers. Finally, in terms of applying these two chapters, in terms of applying Numbers 18 and 19, what should we as servants and followers of Christ think of death? We obviously don't go through the ritual of the red heifer anymore, for Christ has fulfilled the law. But I would argue that there is still a great deal of sorrow around death, even the death of a Christian. The Apostle Paul calls death the last enemy to be destroyed. It's in 1 Corinthians 15, 26. He calls death the last enemy to be destroyed. And that's the chapter, remember, brothers and sisters, that he says that Jesus Christ's victory over death. He talks about Jesus' victory over death and his resurrection. He says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 to 57, that for those who follow Christ, death has lost its sting. Death has been defeated in and through the work of Jesus Christ, but it has not yet been destroyed. That's why we continue to experience death in our world. Make no mistake, death is as unnatural today, after the resurrection of Christ, as it was when it first entered the world after Adam's first transgression. Death is ugly. It is horrific. It is unnatural. We were not made to die, but to live. And even as Christians, Christians we need to have a sober grasp on the harsh reality of death. And let's remember that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, that we may not grieve as those who have no hope. In death we lose loved ones. And we are called to grieve as those who have hope. 
We may grieve, but we must grieve with hope. Now, in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul was concerned that the Thessalonians live properly before outsiders. Paul has such a comprehensive view of the Christian life that he wanted this church in Thessalonica to grieve in such a way that distinguished them from others. So, brothers and sisters, th think about this. You serve Christ and honor the name of Christ in how you respond to death. Even in the midst of the deepest sorrows that we experience in human life as Christians, we are called to serve the Lord by grieving as those who have hope. Those who don't have the hope of eternal life with Christ don't have the hope of facing death. This is a sad and sobering reality. All that lies before our non-Christian friends and family is justice and judgment. And sometimes they are blind to this. Some time ago, I remember presiding over a uh, funeral of an unbe unbelieving family member of mine. And there was a, there was a time of sharing memories uh, at, the, at the funeral. Um, they, they were, uh, the memories that were shared, were shared of him as a, a happy and, and fun uncle. Uh, memories of him as an active and mischievous college and uh, high school student. Memories of him as a dedicated co-worker who, who always had a good time. All of those memories spoke of his past and frankly promised little hope of his future. Friends and family members were clinging on to amusing thoughts of him. It is all that they could cling on to in their pain. As believers, we may grieve, but we must grieve as those who have hope. That does not mean that, that funerals are turned into parties and celebrations. Something horrific has happened in death. And yet when we gather at funerals, we have to serve Christ and share our hope with others, especially those who have no hope. It is our special duty and privilege to serve Christ by offering hope to those who seem hopeless. And here's the hope that we do have as brothers and sisters in Christ, as believers since through faith we have been united to Christ. And even though we may share in a death like His, one day we will also share in a resurrection like His. Brothers and sisters in Christ, our final act of service to Christ will be to die well. But how can we ensure that we will die well? Only by living for Christ while we live. And, and this is where I want us to conclude. We must keep Christ in view while we live. Um, among other things, strangely and surprisingly, we must keep in view the truths that Numbers 18 and 19 point forward to in Christ. We must remember, live remembering that Jesus Christ is our great high priest. And that He has borne our iniquities in His death on the cross. Which means we face no judgment when we come before our God and Father. We must live remembering that we are His treasured possession. His inheritance. And that means we must know that we are His treasured possession. And we must remember that He will deal with us in that manner too. That means with whatever we're going through. 
Jesus and our Father are handling us with care, the care of a precious treasure. We must remember His dying love for us while we live. We must live knowing that He has washed us clean and that His blood is so effective that not a stain remains in the sight of God. When we live keeping these truths in mind, the one who has treasured us becomes our treasure. And there is no greater service that we can render to Him than to reveal in our lives that Christ is better than all. And may we reflect Him in His service in our own. Let's pray together.